Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I feel like I haven't hosted in a while, and I can't almost not believe that it's already March, and I have no idea how that happened, but it seems to be happening to me a lot lately. Um, If you entered our anniversary contest by posting a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, we are announcing our winner today. So you have to sit through the show so you can find out if you won. So, and for those of you who did post reviews, I really appreciate it. I'm sorry that you can't all be winners, but I do appreciate your willingness to take a few minutes and review our podcast. And to those who are listening, if you would like to do the same, we would really appreciate it. Uh, Okay, we have a great show for you, as always, I hope. Um, We're going to be talking about gap years, and we're also going to be talking about um, a Bachelor of Arts versus versus a Bachelor of Fine Arts. Um, But before we get to those two topics, um, as decisions are starting to come in, I know for those of you who are seniors, it's really, you're getting down to the point where you're really figuring out how you're going to pay for it all. And so in our first session today, I'm excited to welcome my colleague, Stacy McFeeders, who is a former financial aid officer at Emerson College and Elms College. She was a former financial consultant at Mount Holyoke, but also a former VP of Education Finance and Student Loans at J.P. Morgan Chase. And to me, that feels somewhat relevant to our conversation today, which is really about trying to identify cash flow that will help you pay for college, or a little more of college anyway, out of pocket. So, hi, Stacy. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And thank you so much for joining today. And I, I know, in general, what we're talking about today is really, how do you identify areas where you actually have more cash than you think you do, Um, so that you can avoid borrowing as much, since ultimately our hope is that families listening to the show can pay for college at the most reasonable rate available and go into the least amount of debt doing so. And that's that's part of our conversation today. So I guess um, my first question for you is, you know, everyone's going to owe some kind of a balance in terms of paying college expenses, whether you have scholarships, grants, student loans, you're going to be paying something. So what's the best way to think about tackling those different balances? Yep, great question. Um, I love that we're, we're covering this from the cash flow perspective because I think a lot of times families approach the notion of paying for college as sort of a big picture thing and kind of think they're going to figure it out as they go or just worry about financing all of it. But one of the conversations I really encourage families to have as soon as possible, particularly senior families, is okay, you have a sense of what you're going to have to pay out of pocket. And, and contrary to what most people think, everyone has to pay something out of pocket. Um, I think Beth knows well that the whole notion of free ride drives mm-hmm. me crazy because it doesn't really exist. Um, so knowing that everyone's going to owe something, I really encourage families to step back, take a look at what is available to them in their own sort of financial world, and figure out how they're going to do it. Um, I always ask families to take a three-tiered approach to looking at at how to pay for college. The first thing I want you to do is look to see what you have in savings that might be available, if anything, and decide how you want to use that. If you want to use it all in the first year, you want to use some every year, whatever it is, that's great. If there's still a balance remaining, you want to then say, okay, Before we think about borrowing loans, because loans are long-term, is there anything we can contribute from out-of-pocket expenses? And that's where this whole notion of cash flow comes in. So Mm -hmm. when you think about cash flow, you want to be really deliberate and determine exactly where that's going to come from. Um, And then that third tier, um, and I'll come back to cash flow in a second, but that third tier is the last resort is borrowing. So think about the three-tier approach, savings, cash flow, and borrowing. Where I want to spend some time today is on cash flow. So does that Got make it. sense, Beth? 
Yeah, no, it makes a ton of sense. Um, and for those who are thinking, well, I want to hear more about the other things, we are covering yep. those and have in segments throughout the podcast that we've been doing. And in upcoming podcasts, we're going to be talking about things like negotiating and maybe improving your financial aid package, things like that. So today yep. we're focusing on cash flow. All right. So yep. then what is you're talking about minimizing the amount that they have to borrow, which I think is a great thing. I think you'd have very few people who would not be on board with that. Um, so how do you go about doing that? Yep, great. So I'm going to tell you all something that you know, and that is that children are expensive to raise, right? So yep. when we talk about cash flow, I want you to think about the money you have spent on your kids without really focusing on it for the last 16, 17, 18 plus years. So most of us, when we started paying childcare costs, if we paid childcare costs, we didn't think about it. We just figured out how to come up with that eight, ten, twelve thousand dollars. And over the last, you know, probably twelve, fourteen years, you've continued to spend that kind of money on your kids. So what I'm going to challenge you all to do is step back and find out where that money is in your family budget. So my first challenge to every family is to sit down for a period of time. I like to say a month, but that can be overwhelming. Minimum two weeks, and write down every dollar that you spend. Everything. Coffee, uh, dinners out, regular grocery shopping, utilities, all of your kids' expenses, whether you're handing them $20 as they walk out the door, you're paying their, their um, athletic fees, you're paying their um, music lessons, write it all down. Then take a look at it. Sit down, look at it in one fell swoop. Take a look at it and circle the things that won't necessarily be a part of your regular expenditures when your kid leaves the house, when they go to college. Right away, you are identifying cash flow. So the first place you're going to identify your cash flow is the money you're spending on your kids that you won't be spending going forward. That's number one. Number two, where can you make cuts that might be extraneous to your life? So I'll give you some personal examples. I'm a big coffee drinker. Beth knows this. I have really tried hard to reduce my out-of-home coffee purchases over the years because I know that that's an expense. But everybody always attacks coffee, and that seems a little unfair as a coffee lover. But it's a great example. Can you make coffee at home for a dollar versus buying it for five? Um, so that's just sort of one way to kind of go about the process. So first and foremost, identify what you're going to be making available once your child is no longer living at home. And then two, where can you cut costs? Right. And, you know, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about, you know, right away comes to, some things that come to mind for me are sports fees that we pay um, for my son, which total close to a thousand dollars every year. Um, uh, the bus that costs uh, more than $500 a year. So all of these things will go away when he goes to college. So that's just a little piece of cash flow that I can see exactly. will be available exactly. to pay once he leaves. Yep. So. I think that's, that's great advice. Didn't mean to interrupt. No. So, you know, so when you identify the cash flow, sometimes you're, you may feel like, okay, that's not a lot. Does it really help? And just remember, every dollar you can pay to the college is less than you have to borrow. And when you're borrowing, you're borrowing with interest over time. So just keep in mind, every dollar you borrow, if you take the full period of time to repay it, it's at least 1.5 times more than what you originally would have spent. So in your example, Beth, you've just immediately identified $1,500. Well, that's $1,500 mm -hmm. less than you would have to spend um, plus interest when you repay a student loan. Right. So, you know, makes perfect sense. Yep, exactly. I love it. Um, and so is there a specific way that you would suggest using the cash flow that they identify to to pay the colleges? Because, you know, when I think about it, I'm like, well, maybe that would cover books and transportation, but maybe there's a better way to use that money. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So there's a couple things you can do. I think the first one is if, you know, wh when you identify what that amount is, you're going to amortize that out over a year. So let's say, for example, um, you recognize that you are currently paying, you know, $100 a month for music, music expenses and maybe another, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month for sports or whatever it might be. If you want to kind of retain your budget on a month-to-month -month basis, you could actually 
take those, those monies and actually create with the college or with an entity that the college is working with what is called a monthly payment plan. So rather than paying that full $1,500 in our example that we just talked about to the school at one time, you might say, you know what, I can unearth $150 a month over 10 months. Mm-hmm. So most colleges offer a monthly payment plan where you would enroll, whether it's a 10-month plan or a five-month per, you know, per each semester, whatever their um, prescribed um, monthly payment plan is, you would actually enroll in that. No, there's no interest associated. Sometimes there's a small application fee. And then you could, over the period of time that the student is enrolled, make a monthly payment. Ultimately, that might feel a little less cumbersome for, for you as a family. You're making, a, you know, sort of an installment payment, um, which over time ulti- ultimately reduces your overall balance due to the school. Right, which makes total sense because when I think about it, it's not like I pay for the sports fees up front. I pay for them for every um, every sports season. So it's not like I'm expected to come up with $1,000 on August 31st or whatever the day is, the first day of school. It's I'm paying a third of it then and then I'm paying a third of it for the winter season and then again a third of it in the spring, which is obviously yep. much easier to accommodate than... Yep, exactly. And, Right. So that makes a lot of sense. And I think, too, if you're thinking about cash flow and you're thinking about those regular expenses, it's not like you have that money all saved up and ready to go in one lump payment. So parceling it out seems like it would also be more realistic when you think about cash flow. Yep, exactly. And I think knowing that the monthly payment plan is an option or some type of payment plan is an option really does sort of reduce the burden for families. I think a lot of times families get that bill in July and December for each semester, they see that huge bottom line and it kind of induces panic. Whereas if you look at it and say, okay, you know, there's a, a $20,000 balance, but if we could pay, you know, $1,000 a month over, the, you know, the remaining period of time, that reduces what you have to borrow overall. So I think it's right. thinking about, you know, tackling it in all of the ways that you can, but the, sort of your last resort should always be what you borrow. Got it. Stacy. thank you so much. I think this is a really helpful thing. I'm not sure people always think about this piece of it. And um, I know that I have started to think about this, but I, I can drill down and I'm fairly certain I'm going to be able to find a little bit more money that I spend on him on a regular basis that I don't really think about. And I would encourage all of our listeners to do the same because... Uh, the for me the biggest takeaway is I can either find that in my cash flow and that's fifteen hundred dollars that I'm not going to pay interest on or I'm just going to roll that into more borrowing and then that's going to compound over time and who wants that no one wants to pay more exactly exactly it, it already costs so much all right we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to be talking about a bachelor of arts versus a bachelor of fine arts with our resident expert so don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. I am very excited to welcome my colleague, Sai Samboon, who is a former Penn admissions officer. We actually worked together at Penn. Um, but key for our segment today is that he also has both a, B, a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's in Fine Arts uh, in Dance. And so... He is here to talk to us today about the difference between a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Fine Arts. Hi, Sai. Hi, Beth. Hello, everyone. All right. So we have a lot to get through. And so I'm going to jump right in. I guess the first question I would have for you is, can you tell us what is a BA in terms of an mm-hmm. and a BFA in terms of an art education? Mm-hmm. What are each of those? Absolutely. Thanks so much for, for asking that question. And thanks for having me. So there are many differences between a BA in the arts and a BFA in the arts. And for the purposes of our conversation, I want to say that the arts will include everything. I mean, my focus, of course, has been in dance and theater. When we talk about a BFA, we can be talking about a BFA in dance, in theater, in design, um, in costume design, in playwriting, and certainly in the visual arts, as well as in music. So there's a huge, broad variety of what are uh, opportunities that exist for the BFA. So the main differences are that with the BA in the arts, there is a much broader stroke. It's a much broader education. So if you were to go to, say, a liberal arts college and major in theater or major in theater arts, um, you are getting a Bachelor of Arts because this is a broad exploration of that field. You may be taking the acting classes, maybe a theater history class, maybe a playwriting class, but the depth and breadth within the field is not going to be as intensive as in a BFA. So compared to that, if you were to study theater in a BFA program, yes, you would have acting classes, but at many different levels. You might have Shakespearean acting. You might have 20, uh, 20th century acting. You may have several levels of voice, you know, voice one, two, three, four. Um, you may have lots of playwriting classes, you know, how to write plays for uh, three characters, how to write ones that have 50 characters. Um, you would learn how to do stage design. You would do stage combat. So the, the opportunities curricularly are much thicker and deeper in a BFA program compared to a BA program in any of these arts. Got it. And interesting to me that you actually chose the Bachelor of Arts as your focus mm-hmm. as an undergrad and curious about... You know, what was it for you that was, um, you know, why did you go in that direction versus the BFA? That's a great question. And the honest truth is that I didn't know that this was what I wanted to do. So going to high school, you know, um, I did a lot of theater, a lot of dance in high school, and it was something that I enjoyed, but I never thought that I would pursue it professionally. So went to a small liberal arts college. Uh, majored in anthropology. You know, I loved culture, loved learning about humanities, and then decided to minor in dance because at the time they did not have the major. But even just getting into the minor and taking the classes in ballet and jazz and African dance and modern dance, that to me introduced me to a whole new world of movement. And so after working with you <laughs> at yep. in Philadelphia, um, you know, I was in my, my, my mid-20s, and at that time I thought, you know, I really kind of want to pursue this professionally. And thankfully for me, there are Masters of Fine Arts programs. So I think for me, it's just more of a non-traditional background because I didn't know that that's what I wanted right from the beginning. But if there are students who truly are passionate about the arts, whether it is dance or theater or music or the visual arts, and that's really what they want to study professionally, then that's where a BFA, a Bachelor of Fine Arts, straight out of high school, would be a good fit and something to consider. Right. And actually, why don't we continue on that? So in terms of um, what you, who you would say would be best suited to that BFA, it, it's the student who's really sure and very focused. Is that kind of the difference for you in your mind? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, so many different opportunities to pursue a career in the arts, right? So coming back into the BFA program, who is best to attend a Bachelor of Fine Arts program? So let's say for dance, right? If you mm-hmm. are interested in not just taking dance classes, but performing on the main stage of your university or college uh, dance department, right? If you are interested in 
not just maybe a little ballet, maybe a little jazz, but in many different uh, levels of ballet, many different levels of jazz, many different levels of world dance, of improvisation, of dance history, of design, of partnering, of improv, of laba notation. These are all things that exist in a Bachelor of Fine Arts program in dance. And the reason is because this is a pre-professional degree. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing as if you were interested in studying, uh, getting a BA in physics versus a Bachelor of Science in Engineering. Right? Yes, so that's a great you, example. In your mind, yeah, you know, and same, um, another example would be if you were getting a BA in economics versus a Bachelor of Science in Business or a Bachelor mm-hmm. of Business Administration, right? So it's the same kind of idea where if, if in your heart, in your body, in your mind, you're like, I just want to be immersed in the art. I want to be uh, performing all the time, not just twice a year, but all the time, Right. I want to mm-hmm. be technique classes that challenge me. Um, then the BFA program is the best fit for you. Right. And I, I love the analogy you're making because I do sometimes talk to students about, you know, they're like, I really love econ. I'm thinking I'm going to go business. But mm-hmm. then we dig a little more deeply. What is it that you like about econ? And is it the, what are you looking mm-hmm. for in your education? And if they're looking for, in this situation, a little bit more theoretical um approach to econ, then the BA in econ might be better. If they want to go and spend all their time focused on business and hands-on and all of that, that's when the business mm-hmm. program makes the most sense. So this exactly. all does kind of kind of begs the question. So in the end, however, you can major in econ, go on to a mm-hmm. career in business. You can mm-hmm. do a business education, go on to a career in business. Mm-hmm. What about the BFA, the BA? How are those viewed from a professional standpoint? Yep. And that's a great question. I think that that question comes up a lot, right? When we as counselors chat with families, with students who are interested in the arts, can you receive a BA and still work in the profession of the arts? Of course you can, right? Because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it is about talent. You have to have the talent to back it up. So there are plenty of people... Um, in, in my friend community that are on Broadway, that are in films, that are, you know, doing straight plays and musicals who do not have a BFA. They have mm-hmm. a BA, but they continue to work in the arts after college. So it was no longer an activity. It was no longer um, their major, but they were taking classes at studios. You know, they, they made networks, they made connections, and they continue to do that. You could absolutely do that. But the BFA does give you credibility. It gives you a leg up because, one of the things that differentiates between a BFA and a BA is that the BFA requires an audition, right? Uh, so there is yeah. a pre-screening process. So universities that accept students into their BFA program, they see you have to have the talent to back it up, right? If you are, um, if professionally you graduate from high school, and, excuse me, from college in the BFA program and your resume says that you studied at let's say the University of Michigan, and you studied musical theater there. And let's say that on your resume, it says that you played the witch in Into the Woods or Cassie in the chorus line or Steely in the color purple. That's very clear that you have really gotten to the, of your program, right? You auditioned mm-hmm. into a very competitive program and you got to be a lead in a major program where alums are performing all over. But right. if you ever go to see a show and you look at the resumes of the actors, you'll see that there's quite a few that did not work on a BFA. So at the end of the day, it is about what you have as your talent and your skill set and how you move on from there. Yeah, and I mean, I think we could see that in the in the place where it's easiest to see, right, in, in television and in movies where you see actors mm-hmm. who don't have BFAs, who many of whom in some cases dropped out of high school or went from high school mm-hmm. right to Hollywood, right, or worked as actors yep. their whole lives as kids. So... Yeah. Clearly, it ultimately it is the talent, but I think that is um, an interesting connection between what that gives you on your resume right off the bat. That mm-hmm. if they've never seen you, if you didn't, if you've never been in New York City and you land in New York City and you at least have a resume that shows something, it might help get you in the door at least initially, versus the person who has nothing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And just to follow up on that, you know, when you are in a BFA program, whether that is music or dance or theater or musical theater, there are usually showcases where the program brings you to New York or Los Angeles and you perform in front of agents, you know, you perform in front of casting Mm -hmm. directors. So the BFA does have a network 
a connection to the professional world, whereas the BA may not. Um, because students who are studying dance as a Bachelor of Arts typically will study alongside something else. Like there may be pre-med and dance, you know, or they're mm-hmm. studying theater uh, and economics because they want to have that double major. So it also depends on fit. Like if you are interested in doing this because you love it, but you don't really think about pursuing it professionally and you want to have that, you know, French major as well, or that economics major, as we were talking, then the BA would be a better fit because it is very tough to double major within a BFA and something else because the time and the commitment is so, uh, is so heavy in the pre-professional programs. Right. And actually, that leads me to another question, which is around, I know there are some combined programs out there where you might do something mm-hmm. like a BFA and a BA together or a BFA and a BS. Yeah. And so is that yeah. something like what you're talking about or would both degrees be kind of focused on the arts? Yeah. So that's a very good question. And in fact, I think a lot of universities now with both BA and BFA programs understand that the the reality of a career in the arts um, is very volatile, right? There's so much supply and very little demand. And so students are asking for finance classes. They're asking for classes where they can learn how to market themselves, how to use social media. Um, So to answer your question, there are are several. So, for example, Tufts University has a great combined BSA and BA program in the School of the Museum of Fine Arts, right, in Boston. So that's connected Mm -hmm. together. Um, Drexel has a great Bachelor of Science in Dance program where students are not just learning how to use your body as artists, but also as a laboratory, understanding how the body works through the lens of dance and science. So that's very, very interesting. So a lot of colleges are moving towards these possibilities now because they understand that it can be very tough to <laughs> pursue right. a career in the arts. And so to have that you know, additional skill set is truly paramount. Right. I mean, if there is ever anything that probably parents stress the most about is the child who says, I want to major in acting or dance or mm-hmm. it's something mm-hmm. where you're just all you could think of as a parent is, yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I just don't, it's hard. <laughs> it would be hard to embrace that. Um, yeah. And, you know, my son's dad majored in acting in college and, and, and majored, got his master's at a very high level, um, studied with some very recognizable people, had leads, all of those things, but it never, Mm -hmm. you know, the career just never quite came. And that's for someone Mm -hmm. who had Mm -hmm. everything that you would think you would need to Mm -hmm. be competitive. So it is, those seem like a really great and exciting opportunity. Absolutely. And we can't discount hard work, right? And of course, everyone works hard in this field, but sometimes it's a luck of the draw um, combined with the talent and combined with the innate skill. I mean, I have a quick story. This past weekend, I went to see an amazing show. Uh, My very good friend, who I performed with for many years, did not study theater in college, studied engineering at a big state school in Michigan, moved to New York in his mid-20s just to be like, let's just do it. And I just (laughs) saw him in Hamilton as Hamilton. Yeah, (laughs) you know, and so that's someone who is, I think, is a great example of someone who, okay, I have a natural talent. I love this, and I'm going to take as many classes as I can when I get to New York and meet people and go to showcases and auditions. Um, and 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 here we are. Yeah, and 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 so in many ways, that's kind of a third option, right? You do nothing related to what you are interested in in college, and you major in something like engineering or whatever. But then you right. go out and and focus on this in the years out of college. How did he how did he pay the bills? I know every parent out there is asking that question. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And so the third option is, and like you said, there are many people that you've seen on television and film, you know, um, even in theater who decide to eschew finishing high school or they do online high school, right? Or they eschew going to college and they go right into the field. And that's absolutely a possibility. But as we were just saying, Sometimes these opportunities and roles can dry up, and then what do you have? And so a third option would be to pursue your other interests that you like in college. Maybe it is a business degree. Maybe it is engineering. Maybe it is kinesiology. And then you can still perform in your part-time, in your extracurricular activities. And if you really want to pursue that, maybe when you move to the cities, um, you know, I, I don't want to be geocentric with just New York because there's amazing theater in Chicago and Los Angeles and 
Houston. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's everywhere around the country. Um, there are opportunities to take classes. You know, there's studios that offer adult classes, whether it's in musical theater or acting or dance or whatnot. So that is an option, um, as well as going to school full-time. Got it. All right. So I think, um, well, we actually have time for uh, uh, a couple more questions. So what would you suggest for BFA applicants who are listening and they're saying, yes, BFA, that is me all the way. What would you encourage them to consider when they're researching and choosing programs to apply to and then obviously to attend Mm -hmm. at some point? Yes. If you are a student or if you're a parent that's listening and you you have a child that is interested in applying to the BFA, um, a couple things to think about, right? Fit. As always, when we're looking at a college for, for our students, the fit is the most important. So here's what. I got my MFA at Ohio State. I would mm-hmm. never have gone to Ohio State as an undergrad because there are 55,000 students and I wanted something very small, right? So right. the students that go to a BFA in dance program at a large school like Ohio State or Michigan or Illinois, whatnot, that is a certain fit, right? That is a BFA program within a larger mm-hmm. university. So these are students who want to be immersed in their intimate dance or theater or music environment, but still go to football games and basketball games that have that mm-hmm. rah-rah kind of opportunity. That's a very different kind of student who applies to Juilliard or Cal yes. or or Tisch NYU, right? So mm-hmm. I think that if you are a student looking for these, think about all those factors that we think about anyway when you're looking at a college. You need to think about location. You need to think about um, the connections that the college has. So, for example, where do they do showcases? Who are the agents that come to, to, to your showcases to watch you, you know, and observe you? Um, do you want to have that rah-rah experience? Or maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe you want to perform professionally while still being in school. So these are a couple of things that you should definitely think about if you want to pursue the BFA track. Any tips for applying or when thinking about BA programs, which seem a little less... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're just, you're looking for different things from that. So any advice that differs? Absolutely. And the BA program, you're looking at um, the depth and breadth within the actual major itself, right? So there are some wonderful colleges, actually many wonderful colleges that have fantastic undergraduate BA dance programs. Um, I can think of Connecticut College, for example. Um, They have a fantastic undergrad program in dance. One of the reasons is because uh, they have faculty that perform consistently in New York City and have their own company. So if you are interested in more of that liberal arts combination with the arts, then look at the faculty. Look at who's teaching. Um, did they come from certain companies that interest you, right? Um, mm-hmm. Skidmore is a great example for a BA in theater. The, the, the department is headed by um, uh, artists that have their own company called the City Company, which there's a lot of interesting... Um, new and experimental theater. So that's your thing. Then maybe that is the kind of program you're looking for, as opposed to something that might have more traditional uh, theater programs. Got it. So, yeah, we're still looking at research, right, in all these different areas. Yes. Sai, this has been really helpful, and I I think that the the reality is just that – these programs are like any other. You need to look into them. You need to see those ha- that have the offerings that make the most sense for you and what your goal mm-hmm. is to study and possibly do um, once mm-hmm. you're in college and appreciate your your insight. I, we covered way more than I thought we were going to be able to, and, and I hope that our listeners found it as helpful as I did. <laughs> Great. All right, we are um, going to take a quick break and then we're talking about gap years. So don't go away. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. 
Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. We are uh, wrapping up our third segment on the show today by first announcing the winner. For those of you who are aware, I mentioned this at the beginning of the show, we had an anniversary contest and um, we asked people to submit reviews on Apple Podcasts and we chose a winner from the reviews. Um, Today, then, our winner is Robin's account, <laughs> drumroll, I, I don't know who Robin's account is officially associated with, but I'm going to give you an email address. You can let us know, but your review was awesome, Robin. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to read it. As my daughter was entering high school, I realized how many, many, many years it had been since I applied to college. I went looking for a way to educate myself and found this podcast. The episodes have been invaluable, clarifying issues I thought I understood and raising my awareness of many others I would never have thought to ask about. I went back and listened to four years worth of episodes. And this is my aside. Wow, that's a commitment, Robin. I'm glad you found it helpful. And while that wasn't essential, it was time well spent. Can't recommend highly enough if you want to really gain a deep understanding of this process. Um, so email us, Robin, and at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. So again, it's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. All right, so we are talking about gap years. And here to talk to us about this is someone who I think of as something of an expert in this area um, because she's a former admissions officer at Tufts, Barnard, Northeastern, and Connecticut College. So she's certainly seen it from the admissions perspective and then is also a former school counselor, so has seen it from the student applying perspective. Um, Jen Simons, so happy to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for having me back, Beth. All right. Well, we are talking about gap years today. And I think the first thing that I would ask is really, when you have a student who's considering a gap year, um, what are some of the the goals that you sometimes hear students talking about in terms of wanting a break? Sure. So there are two categories of reasons that students would choose to take a gap year. The first is the most common, which is, um, as you said, they need a break and or there's something that they want or need to do that is going to benefit them in their college experience and beyond or is a requirement. And when I say is a requirement, actually uh, some some, uh, countries such as Korea, Singapore have Military uh, requirements. Israel uh, for their for their uh, stu- students that are going off to university. Um, some religions have uh, the opportunity slash requirement um, for students to do a learning year. Um, you know where they're immersed in their religion. Um, but most of the time, this sort of optional year happens when families, when students and families feel that they either need an opportunity to sort of mature a little bit so that they can realize the benefits of a college education or that there's something that they want to do that is not 
it could be academic, but is not to be found inside a college classroom per se. So by academic, they could do a language immersion or um, travel um, with a theme. They can work. They can um, give themselves an opportunity to do something that wouldn't be they wouldn't be able to experience in a college classroom. And that's one category of reasons. Yep. Well, that's the first and, category of reasons. Okay, sorry. So keep going. What do you see? No, that's okay. Second? I mean, we could talk about that. The other, the other category is very different, and that is a student that decides with their family to take a gap year because they weren't happy or successful, or the, their college search um, and results weren't what they expected. So that, there are two sort of distinct categories here. Right. Right. One where you are actively pursuing something and it has nothing to do with where you've been accepted or not. And the other is everything to do with it um, is kind of a great way to summarize it, right? The really broad view of it. So what are your thoughts about for that second group, this idea that you're going to take a gap year and you're going to have different results? Right. So it's, it's complex. Um, the, The first thing I want students to know is that time goes very during your your proposed gap year, it will go very quickly. Um, there isn't as much time as you think there is going to be to mm-hmm. do things like improve your academics because the one thing you don't want to do and can't do um, in time off between high school and college is enroll in a college or university. And I say can't do it um, simply because then you would be considered a transfer student. Then it's not a gap year. Then you're in a different applicant pool. If you still want to be in a freshman applicant pool, you can't enroll at a college or university um, in the eyes of, of, you know, most colleges and universities, right, there are right. exceptions, but essentially um, you have to do something to, to, you know, prove to them that you're a different candidate than you were when you applied, but there's not a lot of time to do that. The most successful candidates use a gap year opportunity such as this one to recalibrate their expectations and their college list, if you will. They're students that oftentimes have overshot, so to speak, have applied to places that were unrealistic. Maybe they got bad advice. Maybe they decided to not heed advice, you know, whatever the case may right. be. Or they found themselves, I've, I've had students that literally were waitlisted at every place that they applied to um, and didn't get off any waitlist. You know, they came close, but they didn't quite make it, so they overshot a little bit. So they're going to use that gap time to recalibrate what it is that they're interested in and the places that they can go. Um, Sometimes students actually don't do well or as well, um, you know, at a certain point in their high school career, for example, the end of junior year, and they need the rest of senior year after their applications have gone out to improve their grades. They want to end on a strong note senior year because their grades may be dipped. Um, prior to that. And that's something that they can do going into the next application cycle. In other words, they just needed a little bit more time. Maybe they needed a little bit more time. They started their SAT testing late, didn't have enough time to take it multiple times and want to improve that. So um, you can actually use this gap year as an opportunity to think about where you're going or where you want to go differently and give yourself some what you would consider to be better options. Yeah, and I, I think just to highlight uh, what you're saying here is, I can think of an example of a student I worked with fairly recently who um, kind of it was a combo of getting a little bit of bad advice, making some strategic choices that were not very strategic, um, maybe not, um, I thought his application just highlighted the wrong thing. So there were a lot of decisions that were made leading up to applying to college that ultimately resulted in very disappointing results for a student who really should have fared somewhat better. And so in his case, we used that gap year for him to completely re to approach the application a completely different way. He also added better testing, um, 
He was also able to build on an internship that he started in the second half of his senior year. So he didn't even know about it when he applied to colleges. So that was something. But what's notable about that is he was not starting it in September of what would have been his freshman year at college. It was carrying through the summer, something he started in the winter of his senior year. So there was a lot more time to build that into something. And um, his results the second time were way better than they were the first time. Mm -hmm. But I think of him as being a little bit less, a little bit more unique. That does not describe the the students that I and you probably typically see who come and are disappointed by their results. There, there is, there's a limit to what they're really able to do with that gap year. Um, that is Absolutely. sometimes. And usually it's the parents. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Beth, but oftentimes no. I feel like it's the parents. They're disappointed. I see, I've seen student after student be excited and ready to move on and making Facebook friends. And the parents are like, but maybe if we just took the year off and reapplied to insert the name of the most selective college here, sure. they, would, they would have an advantage. And that's not going to be the case. Right. Yeah. I think we have to be realistic about what a gap year really can and cannot do. Um, So here's here's a question. What are some things that you have seen students use that time for that was valuable, period? You know, not just, oh, to get into a better college, but more from the perspective of just a really great way to use your time with that year off between high school and college. Yeah, I'm actually going to start before the gap year and and just put a plug in for really finishing up your senior year on a high note. Um, you know, don't, it's hard because you, you can't peter out, but your first half of your senior year, if you're doing it correctly, is really busy and really intense and overwhelming. And so it's easy to sort of lie back and coast. And so I think that the way you need to look at the gap year or going into college is that it really starts halfway through the senior year. So in terms of um, having an effective gap year, you can do anything, but the idea is to really do something that you wouldn't be able to necessarily do (laughs) in college. And I've had students that were the, the most successful gap years, and this is very interesting, are students that actually worked um, they found, um, you know, one or two or three jobs that might be considered not not fields that they wanted to go into, but um, jobs that enabled them to make some money to prepare for college, but also gave them a very broad perspective on what, what it's like to be in the working world. So we're not mm-hmm. talking, you know, you're not going to get out of high school and become a neurosurgeon, you know, on your gap year, <laughs> but um, really students that saved money and were able to get a perspective. Um, students that were also very happy with their gap years um, were ones that were able to do uh, language immersion programs. Um, and so sometimes this is in the context of a religious, you know, opportunity. For example, a lot of um, Orthodox Jewish students go to Israel as part of, you know, their, their learning. It's considered part of their learning, and they also are deepening their conversational Hebrew if it's not there already. And so, you know, something that is fulfilling to you, I mean, I think this is sort of true of anything, right? Something that is mm-hmm. fulfilling you as a human being is also very valuable. One thing that I don't encourage students to do simply because I don't think they need to do this is, you know, pay a lot of money for immersion experiences, but rather take this opportunity, if, if you can, to kind of create them on your own. Um, you know, and sometimes you can't do that, and it really depends on where you want to be. And your parents, of course, or, you, you know, everybody has to be on board um, with you taking what could actually be a, a risk in terms of not, you know, your future and getting into college because either you have or you're going to be applying to. But in terms of... Um, you know, sort of creating a life for yourself for a year that really shapes you. And that's always risky, right? Taking a risk <laughs> inherently, yes. you know, doing something that's off the grid is going to be inherently risky. So it's, it's kind of great, I think, to navigate a gap year. Um, but the nice thing is that there's no wrong way to do it if you're, mm-hmm. if you're busy and you have a plan to keep yourself challenged and occupied. Well, here's a big question for you as we um, kind of dive into this a little bit more is when do you apply to college? I mean, is this something where 
you should apply before you take your gap year or take your gap year and apply during your gap year? So that's a good question. Most students apply to college after, excuse me, apply, well, yes, apply to college, sorry, um, the traditional, you know, New year. Even if you know that you want to take a gap year, you're going to apply to college. You're going to be accepted to college. You're going to put down a deposit at the college that you want to go to, and then you're going to ask them for permission to take a gap year. So usually the gap year is taken with the intent not only to return, but to go to a college that you've already reserved a spot for yourself at. Now, if there are no colleges that you've been accepted to that you want to go to, um, that's when you apply during your gap year. And it used to be very difficult to apply from abroad, let's say, but now you can apply from anywhere. You can go to Africa and apply, you know. Um, It's it's more challenging to apply when you're not in high school because you don't have all the resources at your fingertips. Your guidance counselor's office is not, you know, 10 feet away. But um, if you line everything up before you go and let's say there are no colleges that you've gotten into that you like, you have a plan. This is something that should be discussed with your college counselor. You should have recommendations written by your teachers before you graduate. So everything should be in line to apply from colleges if you're applying away. But most of the time and most of the people that do take a gap year will have already not only applied to college, but enrolled essentially in a college and put a deposit down and ask for permission and receive permission to take a gap year from that college so that the college is expecting them the following year, or in the cases of military service, sometimes two years after. What's your experience, quickly, with the the last minute or so that we have with colleges granting gap years? Um, I know that often comes up as a question, will I be able to take a gap year? What is your take on that? We have never, as someone on the other side who was in a position to give permission for gap years, it's extraordinarily rare that a gap year request would be denied. The only mm-hmm. reason that it would be um, potentially denied is because you want to enroll in a college or university. No, no college is going to let you enroll someplace else on your gap year, um, or you're doing something that could really be done at a college that you're supposed to be going to. So if you request doing just about anything else, um, certainly non-academic things or things that couldn't, you know, be transferred for credit when you do enroll um, at that college um, that you're supposed to enroll at, then it, it should be granted. It's usually a pretty cut and dry situation. If you know I absolutely must take a gap year, you could certainly ask your the colleges to which you're applying what their policy is first, but it's usually very easy um, for students to be granted permission to take a gap year. Awesome. Jen, thank you so much. Next week, I am back. We're doing a one-year anniversary show, Varsity Blues. We're also going to be talking about the expected family contribution. Uh, Don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.